0: The subject that I really want us to home in on and look at today is how to find joy in loneliness. Because I think most of us have experienced what it is to be lonely at some point in our lives. In fact, a major report by the Mental Health Foundation suggests that more than one in ten people in the UK feel lonely often. The same report, also revealed that the percentage of households occupied by just one person has doubled from 6% in 1972 to 12% in 2008, while the rising divorce rate also means that the number of single-parent families is also increasing rapidly. Overall, the survey found that 48% of respondents think that people are becoming increasingly isolated and detached from one another. And this is certainly backed up by the most recent figures from the Office for National Statistics. I'll tell you, I'll be doing my research this week. Office for National Statistics, which show that there are now 7.5 million people living alone in the UK, and half of those are of pensionable age. 7.5 million people compared with just 4.3 million 15 years ago. But while loneliness, is very common in middle age or retirement or as people go through a divorce or through bereavement the problem isn't just confined to older age groups. A recent report by the NSPCC found that Childline received nearly 10,000 calls last year from children saying they felt lonely that was an increase of 60 percent from five years ago. Now commenting on all this, David Rose, the health correspondent for the Times newspaper, he makes a link between technology and the advance of technology and this increase in loneliness. He writes, technology and the pressures of modern life are today blamed for creating an epidemic of loneliness, as increasing numbers of people rely on the internet to communicate with friends and family. Now, while the internet has changed the way people communicate, Some experts argue that social networking sites like Facebook and Twitter undermine social skills and the ability to read other people's body language, leaving people feeling increasingly isolated. Maybe this helps to explain. why the readiness of the average UK citizen to make new friends fell by 33%. That's by a third between 1985 and 1999. Now, I just want you to try and get your head around that. This would mean there is a whole bunch of people who are feeling socially isolated and lonely and inside desperately want relationship with other people and yet for some reason they are unwilling to try and develop friendships. It's like there's a bunch of people looking at one another, secretly thinking, I'd really like a friend. I'd like a friend as well. Really? I'd like a friend too. Me too. Okay. Who's gonna go first? Not me. Not me either. No, no, not me. Kind of like the way it goes. I don't reckon there are probably A fair few people in this room who can relate to this I don't know maybe you came along to this church and you expected other people to initiate friendship with you the problem is if everyone expects that then everyone leaves at the end feeling disappointed something for you to consider while you go home and have your lunch later anyway all of this is simply to illustrate the fact that people nowadays are increasingly disconnected. They're isolated, they're lonely, they're hurting, and it's an epidemic. It's in the culture, it's in the church, and for some of you it's in your life as well. I've got a few people to anonymously share something of their different experiences of loneliness. Here's what they said. I was always the one in the corner of the school playground with no one to play with. For some reason, I just didn't fit in. I tried all sorts of things to try and be popular, but the harder I tried, the more miserable I felt. Everyone said, university would be great, but for me it was torture. I felt dreadfully shy and alone, as if I was on one side of a glass wall and everyone else was on the other I suppose it's what's known as a midlife crisis nothing really had changed in my life I've got a wife I love two wonderful children a job I enjoy then a month or so after my 40th birthday I went into some awfully dark hole and felt as lonely as hell mostly I'm okay it's Christmas time, but it hits me worst, as that's when he died. And then I stare at his empty chair. I feel swamped by an awful, aching loneliness. Perhaps you can relate some of those stories. So what I want to do for the rest of our time this morning is look at another account. An account from someone who himself experienced profound loneliness, one that provides us with a whole lot of comfort in our loneliness. It's written by the Apostle Paul, and it's recorded for us in the first chapter of his letter to the Philippians. Now, while you're finding it, just by way of background, it helps to understand that Paul, who wrote this letter, he wrote it whilst alone in prison. He was separated from his friends, and he writes to them to try and let them know how much he misses them how much he's enjoyed knowing them, how he may never see them again as there's the very real potential of him being sentenced to death. So here's a guy who should be pretty depressed. Here's a guy who should have absolutely no hope. I mean, he's sitting in prison, facing death because of his faith. He's lonely, he's hurting, he's hungry, pretty beaten up. And he writes this letter to his friends. Here's what he says. Want us to pick it up. In verse 2, chapter 1 of Philippians, here's what he says. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. So what do we learn here about the answer to this whole question of loneliness? Well, the answer is often given that if you're lonely, what you really need Is a friend. In other words, friendship is the solution. Friendship's the answer. Friendship's what you need. Let me tell you this up front. I don't think that Paul is saying here that friendship is the answer to loneliness. I mean, you can be married, you can have kids, you can be around people the whole time, you can have hundreds of Facebook friends, but still feel lonely i to illustrate it like this. I want to think about these questions. Some of them are slightly surreal, but please bear with me. Question number one: How much sand would someone have to consume in order to quench their thirst? How much sand would someone have to consume in order to quench their thirst? Any ideas? What was that? I'm sure someone said something. Lots. Well. I'd suggest it is probably a slightly absurd scenario. And if you've you've got medical people here, you'll know that Johnny's answer actually isn't the right answer. How much sand you consume, even if it's wet sand, how much sand you consume, it probably won't quench your thirst. Assuming you survived eating lots of sand. Kids, don't try this. Please don't try this. Assuming you survived, it would only leave you more desperate for what you really needed, namely Water. Next question. Slightly less surreal. How much stuff would an individual have to purchase and hoard in order to satisfy their need for approval? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense either, does it? Approval and the things you can purchase are two entirely different categories, but. I guess most of us can still think of people who have tried to leverage one for the other. Last question. How many relationships with other people would someone need in order to satisfy their need for a relationship with God? How many relationships with other people? Well, no real connection there either. But again, I know a lot of people who have particularly tried pursuing that dead end. Listen, God created us to enjoy relationship with Him. But the Bible teaches that sin, us living our way rather than God's way, us making ourselves the God, the ruler of our lives, rather than worshipping God as the ruler of our lives. The Bible teaches that sin puts this massive kink in that relationship. It creates this huge divide, this massive chasm between us and God and as a distance we've all felt at times sometimes it's like an ache inside sometimes we experience it as a deep longing, Jesus described it as a thirst as embarrassing as it is for us to admit, some of our attempts to quench this thirst aren't actually a whole lot different from someone trying to quench their physical thirst with sand. And the results aren't a whole lot different either. We just get thirstier. You know, in my line of work, I encounter people almost every week who are trying to quench their thirst with God, with anything but God. Things like relationships, and food, and sex, and alcohol, and work. An achievement and even more achievement and approval and wealth and thrills. In the end, all of these things ultimately just leave us feeling thirstier. The passage we've just read in Philippians, it contains a big clue as to how to satisfy this thirst. I don't know if you noticed, but... There isn't a whole lot of self-pity going on in this passage. Paul's circumstances were pretty grim. They were extremely dire, but there was no complaining. There's no grumbling. There's no sense of isolation. Quite the opposite, in fact. There is just a whole load of thankfulness and joy. And the explanation, funnily enough, is Jesus Christ. Paul refers to Jesus seven times in the first 11 verses of this letter. There's something about Jesus that transforms his perspective, that completely changes his outlook on life. Uh, Against the backdrop of false imprisonment and isolation and the prospect of imminent death, it's like Jesus satisfies him. Jesus quenches his thirst. And Paul alludes to a number of things here that, that Jesus offers which cause all of this to make sense which caused all of this to fit into place. He's our peace. He's our hope. He perseveres with us. He's faithful. He, he carries on his work in us until the end. And he makes us righteous. It's as though he makes us right with God. Paul says it this way in another one of his letters, in 2 Corinthians 5:21. God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him or because of him we might become the righteousness of God now we could profitably look at all of that in a whole lot more detail in fact at the beginning of the week that's what I was planning to do this morning but as I was preparing I just couldn't get the first word of this passage that we started with out of my mind grace Grace. Verse 2, Paul says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Really, it all starts, it all begins with grace. And if you feel the force of this one small word, then I believe everything else will fit into place. Understand grace. And like Paul, you will be able to find joy in the midst of loneliness. So what's so amazing about grace? And what's the link? What's the connection between grace and joy? And how do we get it? Those are the questions I want us to try and grapple with and get to grips with before we finish. First of all, what is so amazing about grace? What's so amazing about this small word, grace? Grace. want to think about this. If we're honest, I guess all of us would like the opportunity to go back in time to a particular day, or a weekend, or a season of our lives, so that we could redo it and do it differently. But frustratingly, time only moves in one direction, forwards. So while we're tempted to look back we can never physically go back. And it's often this looking back that surfaces our thirst, this deep ache inside, this thirst that seems unquenchable, this thirst that's fueled by unfulfilled dreams and missed opportunities and regrets and consequences of our mistakes and just this feeling, this, this nagging feeling, there must be something more than this. And God's response to this thirst, to this ache, is grace. It's grace. Perhaps we prefer time travel or second chances or just pretending it never happened. But God always opts for grace. Grace is perhaps the best word to summarize what we believe about God as Christians. That we're sinners but that God is incredibly gracious, that unlike other religions, Christianity doesn't teach that you need to somehow pay God back through good deeds and good works, through our efforts or through reincarnation, kind of paying off your karmic debt or going to purgatory. God's a God of grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. I'm trying to illustrate it like this. i like you to imagine... When I arrived this morning, parked my car next to Mark Mitchell's brand new Ford Focus ST that he polishes daily, I got out of my car because I was in a bit of a rush with a little too much exuberance, and I opened my car door onto the side of his gleaming, pristine, nicely polished Ford Focus ST, and I heard it happen. I heard the ping, and I I looked carefully, and the whole side panel and I'd looked around to see if anyone had noticed and sadly someone had seen me Johnny was arriving even later than me and and he had seen the whole event happen and so I come into the meeting just feeling awful thinking how am I going to confess how am I going to own up to mark and I think what's he gonna say He's a bit bigger than me a bit stronger than me he loves his car more than he loves me what's going to happen so I decide public confession is the best way and I'll, I'll somehow kind of bring it into my sermon and confess in public and so I, I, I say to Mark look I, I've damaged your car it was an accident I really didn't mean to do it I'm so sorry and Mark says being a generous guy I forgive you I'm sure he would. I forgive you that's mercy Grace goes way beyond that. Mark comes out, inspects the damage to his car, and then sees there is a small chip of paint that's come off my car door in the whole thing. His car's much worse. Small small bit of paint come off my car door. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm expecting he's going to kind of charge me for the damage to his car. He says, here's what I'm going to do. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to take the morning off work. I'm the head teacher, I can do that. I'm going to drive you to... Uh, to, 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 to the, the local car dealership I'm gonna buy you a replacement car because your car's been damaged not only that I'm gonna fill it up with petrol I'm gonna pay the tax on it and the insurance and I can see that the the garage you've got at home it, it's not gonna work I'm gonna build you a bigger garage to put the car in and I'm gonna come round once a week and I'm gonna clean your car for you that's grace might I suggest that is how you respond <laughs> And as we come to God, who is bigger and more scary even than Mark Mitchell, as we come to God and we acknowledge all the things that we've done wrong in our lives and how we've sinned against him, and as we repent of our sin, as we turn away from it, and as we resolve to live God's way, God is gracious with us. He exchanges our sin for Christ's sinlessness. He he calls us friends. Not only that, he actually calls us sons, daughters, children of his. He he not only calls us children, he calls us co-heirs with Christ. In other words, what Jesus deserves, he gives to us. Every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. Not only that. He's preparing a place for us to go and be with him and enjoy him for all eternity. It's like it just keeps getting better and better and we have to pinch ourselves. I mean, this can't be true. This isn't what I deserve. I mean, it'd be enough if he just forgave us, but there is so much more. That's been my experience for the best part of 33 years, knowing God. Every time I I think that I fathom that the depths of his grace... There are more surprises as he lavishes good stuff on me that I just don't deserve. It's an amazing message. Jesus bore our punishment when he died on the cross so that we could now go free. It's undeserved. It's unearned. It's unending. It's unlimited. It's unmerited. That's something. The wonder of grace. It's not like God is obligated to us in any way, but he has lavished his grace on us in every way. Grace that leverages our past for a much better future. Grace that fills in the gaps created by our sin. Grace that allows us to honestly face up to our past without being controlled or condemned by it. Grace that makes denial unnecessary. The writer of Hebrews refers to it like this. Let us then approach the throne of grace, God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I can listen to all of that. I don't know what you think, but I still don't think it comes naturally. To pray and ask for grace in our time of need. We tend to pray for the thing we think we need most in our time of need. We we pray for our circumstances to change. We we pray for memories to go away. We, We pray for people to treat us better. It's understandable to want those things, but that's not what God promises us. What's promised is grace in our time of need. His grace is more than enough. More than enough. In another one of his letters, Paul tells the story of a time in his life, a period in his life, when he was struggling with some kind of physical problem. He tells how he asked God, pleaded with God to remove whatever it was. But God said no. Like he sometimes says no to us as well. And instead of changing his circumstances, God says, My grace... Is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness in other words your weakness isn't going to go away I'm not going to remove it from you but I'm going to sustain you through it how by grace have you ever gone through a difficult season of life and you have felt God carry you through it then you've experienced something of this form of grace or if maybe You've stood from a distance and you've watched as a Christian friend walk through a tough time without losing their peace. Then you've witnessed this grace in action. I know it's tempting to think that someone who's able to maintain peace even in the midst of a personal storm is just in some kind of denial. I've had the privilege to see God's sustaining grace at work in the lives of so many people on so many different occasions. I know it is real. It is real. Paul puts it best later on in this letter to the Philippians. We'll, we'll reach it in a few weeks' time. But he refers to it as peace that transcends or goes beyond all human understanding. And he describes how this peace actually guards and protects our hearts and our minds. And he's so confident in this expression of God's grace that he tells the Philippian believers to be anxious for nothing. Now, if you think about it? That's a pretty insensitive thing to say. Unless you're absolutely confident that God's grace will be sufficient for whatever someone's facing. Paul was absolutely confident in the sufficiency of God's grace. And we can be as well. Whatever you need, whether it's physical pain or regret, huge regret, from the past, or fear for the future, or this ache of loneliness. God's grace is sufficient for you. Your circumstances might not change, but there is still something about the grace of God that has the ability, the wonderful ability, to sustain you through it. Some of you need to hear this. For some of you, this is going to be like one of those penny-dropping moments. Grace isn't just about the forgiveness we need to become Christians, although it is that. There's also the ongoing day-by-day resources we need to persevere through the trials that life has the habit of throwing at us. And just as God's grace is completely sufficient to save us in the first place, it's also completely sufficient to strengthen us today and for the rest of our days that's what's so amazing about grace so secondly then what's the link what's the connection between joy and grace what a picture of the scene here's this guy Paul sitting in prison he's expecting anticipating death he has no money has no friends in close proximity, has no wife, no kids, no grandchildren. He's pretty isolated. Naturally speaking, he doesn't have a whole lot going for him. But Incredibly, he does have joy. Get this, there are 14 references to joy and rejoicing just in this short letter. 14 references. I don't know about you. But personally, I wouldn't be speaking of joy if I was in his circumstances, unless I knew something that the rest of us simply don't know. And so the question that begs to be answered is this. How could someone like Paul in those circumstances speak so frequently of joy? Now, if you forget everything else from this talk, please don't, but even if you do, remember this. Remember this. Joy isn't as much an emotion as a lifestyle. Joy isn't as much an emotion as a lifestyle. I want to think about it. If joy was simply an emotion, something we feel, then when times are bad. You have no joy. I mean, faced with complete isolation, Paul wouldn't be experiencing any joy whatsoever. He wouldn't say anything about joy. He he certainly wouldn't write a whole letter about joy. I mean, he doesn't have anything to feel joyful about. He, He should be miserable. He should be grumpy. But here's the wonderful thing. Paul understands that joy isn't just a feeling. Isn't just an emotion; it's a lifestyle. Some people really need to know that. It's like you believe that Christians should always be happy. It's like you feel guilty or condemned if you don't feel happy. So you've maybe developed the Christian art of faking it. You feel that admitting you're finding things tough will make other people look down on you and think that in some way you're a failure. And so you put on a mask that hides the fact that you're in pain, or you don't know how to handle your kids, and you're feeling pretty alone in it all. You make out that everything's fine, put your brave face on it all, but you're denying reality. You're lying. That's not joy. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Here's a revolutionary thought for you. How about telling the truth about how you feel about telling the truth so when someone comes up to you and says how are you doing you could actually be honest and you could say yesterday was terrible and today is even worse how are you work's a nightmare things are tough at home i'm just feeling a bit low right now tell the truth be honest now when you tell the truth What you're not doing is faking happiness or joy. The Bible says that we should rejoice with those who rejoice. We should also weep and mourn with those who weep and mourn. If you studied them, the majority of the Psalms are songs of lament written by people who are pretty fed up. Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time for weeping. There's a time for sadness. There is a time for sorrow. It says in Isaiah, anticipating Jesus coming, prophesying about him that that he was a man of sorrows. So it's okay to be down at times, it's all right. You you don't need to fake being happy the whole time. Because joy is a lifestyle that includes sorrow and grief and pain and poverty and loneliness. All these things that Paul's gonna write about in the rest of this letter to the Philippians. I want you to get this. Joy is a lifestyle that celebrates God's grace. That's why Paul's able to say, I'm suffering, but God's grace is sufficient for me. I'm in real pain, but I know the joy of God's grace strengthening me. I'm pretty lonely, but by God's grace, I'm still able to rejoice. You see, because he's experiencing God's grace at work in his life, Paul has a different perspective, a different outlook on the trials he's facing. He can be honest about how tough it is, whilst at the same time having real grounds for confidence and joy. But Paul also takes it a step further here in this passage in Philippians 1. Despite his own personal circumstances being pretty rubbish, he's also had to rejoice in the evidence of God's grace in other people. Verse 4, he says, In all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in your gospel. The gospel, the good news about Jesus, the great news about the grace that Jesus lavishes us with. He he has joy because of the Philippians' partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, get this, all of you share in God's grace with me. He's able to say, although my own personal circumstances aren't great right now, God's grace is reaching others. And I'm really hurting but others are hearing the good news about Jesus. And I'm pretty lonely, but the gospel's going forth, and I'm dying, but I'm comforted by the fact that we both know God's grace, and that's where my joy, my rejoicing comes from. I rejoice in the forward progress, the advance of the gospel, the message of grace. It's like all of this is suddenly meaningful if Others are seeing the difference that Jesus is making in my life and it's encouraging them to investigate relationship with him for themselves and other people are becoming Christians and their lives are getting changed and transformed and sin's being forgiven and relationships are being restored and reconciled and people are receiving hope and new life. That's why I'm rejoicing in my lonely prison cell. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, here's what's so good about this. Suddenly, everything in life is an opportunity for the forward progress of the gospel. So nothing, even the darkest, hardest, most painful situations in life, nothing we go through is meaningless or without purpose if it provides an opportunity for others to see the sustaining grace of God in action in our life. This is what it's going to take for the people around me to meet Jesus for themselves and experience something of his amazing grace in their lives. Then although it is incredibly tough at times, and I guess I'd still rather not go through this, I'd rather be saved from it, I'm still going to rejoice. I'm still going to have joy. So finally then, How do we get to experience this grace? How do we get this grace that enables us to know joy even in loneliness? Well, just in case you missed it, I just want to underline the message that all of this is because of Jesus. Jesus is the only real lasting solution to this whole problem of loneliness. So let me summarize all of this with Jesus. Let let me bring it all back to him, And I'll start with Hebrews 4.15, which says, We do not have a high priest, that's Jesus. He represents us before his Father. He's our great advocate in heaven. We don't have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. I love that verse. Like other religions, where the God stays far away, doesn't have anything to do with ordinary people, we certainly never enter into it to suffer and be lonely and die. The God of Christianity is completely and utterly different. Jesus, the very Son of God, actually comes into this world and he suffers as we suffer. And he was betrayed as we're often betrayed. And he hurts as we hurt. And he died, just as we die. And no matter what we're going through, we can come to him. We can talk to Jesus in prayer. And you know what? He sympathizes. Unlike every other so-called religious leader, Jesus can say, I've been there. I totally understand. I relate. Not only that, I can help you. And I will help you, because I'm good, because I'm gracious. So on this issue of loneliness, can Jesus really sympathize with us in our loneliness? Did, Did Jesus ever experience loneliness in his life? He certainly did. Luke 4 describes how Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. You know, sometimes God will lead you into times or periods or seasons of loneliness. Of course, sometimes loneliness is really just the result of your sin. You're, you're just obnoxious to people around you, and so people are sick of you and don't want to be with you. You just need to repent of that, and then you won't be so lonely. But sometimes it's not because of that. It's not our fault. It's not because of sin. Sometimes the Holy Spirit just leads you into a season, a period of loneliness, to get you alone, to, to work on your character to mature you, to grow you, to change you. Suddenly what happened to Jesus? Additionally, Jesus also experienced voluntary loneliness. The Bible tells us he often withdrew to lonely places to be alone with the Father. Some days you're going to voluntarily choose loneliness. You just need to get away from it all. You need to try and clear your head. You need to get some time with God. Jesus also experienced involuntary loneliness, which was incredibly painful to him. His own family denied him. Judas, his friend and disciple, betrayed him. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the night before he was crucified, even Jesus' closest friends failed him. They went to sleep, went and asked them to pray and stand with him and support him. So, some of you can relate to that. When you needed the most, it's as though your friends weren't there for you. They didn't understand what you were going through. They, they didn't provide the encouragement and support that you wanted them to. But Jesus also experienced an intensity of loneliness that none of us will ever go through. Jesus went to the cross absolutely alone. And there on the cross, he was abandoned by God the Father. As he's been crucified, he cries out, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, God the Father turned his back on God the Son. And Jesus felt the full weight of the consequence of sin, our sin. And his unbroken, perfect, eternal relationship with God the Father was momentarily severed. And in that moment, Jesus tasted a loneliness that none of us can or ever will experience. Jesus was utterly alone. He tasted physical death as a consequence of our sin. He, he tasted spiritual death as a consequence of our sin. He tasted relational death as a consequence of our sin. And then finally, with his dying breath, Jesus says, it is finished. It's finished. It, it was a shout of triumph. It, it meant that all the work of salvation was done. It accomplished everything he came to do. And all that's left is for you and I to trust in Him, to be reconciled to God, to live a new life together with countless others who themselves have experienced His grace. Close with this. Hebrews 12, sort of summarizes. I've been trying to say, what I've been trying to get across to you. Let's it like this. Therefore, as a result of all of this, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, so many people who have experienced God's grace for themselves, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let's be quick to Let's be quick to confess our sin. Let's be quick to give it to Jesus and start afresh. Let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you, you, will not grow weary and lose heart. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the loneliness of the cross so that you could experience grace and you could know joy even in your times of loneliness? That's the answer. You need to look to Jesus and keep on looking to Jesus. Some of you, you perhaps need to become a Christian today. You need to give your sin to Jesus, receive his righteousness, receive his grace. Others of you, you need to come to him humbly in repentance, thanking him for his grace, his ongoing, sustaining grace. You to continue to persevere with him. Because really, there is no other life. Only he satisfies that ache, that thirst.